This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning. Let's go to the Lord and ask His direction in our study. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together to study Your Word, for it is in Your Word that we come to understand Your thinking, for it is in Your Word, Paul says, that we have the mind of Christ. That is, it is an expression, a finite expression of that which uh, reflects Your thinking and your thoughts, your plan, your purposes for the human race, your plan and purposes for our lives as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we study your word, we learn absolute truth, and that becomes our rock, that becomes our reference point for every issue, every decision in life, and especially as we come to understand our riches that we have in Christ, for you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Now, Father, I pray that as we study today that we might come to understand your word more clearly. God, the Holy Spirit, would help us to see the application of these principles in our own lives, that you might be glorified and that Christ might live through us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And we are actually down to about verse 20, but today I want to focus a little more on the broader context of, uh, of Colossians as we get into this particular text, because we're getting, really getting into the center of this epistle, this message that Paul is, uh, has sent to this church in Colossae, and it is in this section, which actually began back around verse uh, 10, It is in this section that we uh, learn the real essence, the real core, the center of the Christian life, how to live the Christian life and what that foundation, uh, what that foundation is. And in this section, as we see, it is based on our position in Christ. Now, that's a phrase that's familiar to many of us. And anyone who has been a Christian for very long or has read the Bible very much knows that this is a term that is distinctively one used by the Apostle Paul. The doctrine it represents isn't unique to Paul, but the phrase itself is one that is distinctively uh, the Apostle Paul's. It's a phrase that we talk about a lot and have talked about a lot, but it's one that I think sometimes... Uh, whenever we talk about anything a lot, it tends to become white noise, 
and we don't really stop and think about what it actually means and what all is involved in that particular phrase. And uh, it, this is what Paul is really unpacking in Colossians. His basic point to the Colossian believers is don't get distracted away from Christ because it is in Christ where every believer is that we have these riches that God has given us. We are wealthy beyond our imaginations. Anything that we could possibly think of in terms of what God has supplied for us in Christ. But sadly, most of us, most Christians are unfamiliar with what we have in Christ, or if they're familiar with what we have in Christ, they're not really making a connection between what we have in Christ and facing day-to-day problems, challenges, and issues uh, that, that we all commonly f- face. For many people, they think of in Christ as just a, well, that's a nice theological phrase, nice doctrinal term, I understand the doctrine, but I'm not so sure I'm clear on on the application or the implications of it. So that's why I've titled this this morning in Christ. It's not just a nice theological phrase. There's a lot to this. Now, in the last few lessons, I've focused on the issue of what uh, the Apostle Paul is addressing in terms of the problems in Corinth. And the problem in Corinth isn't any different from the problem uh, in Houston, Texas, or the United States, or any other country uh, in the world today for Christians, is that we look for answers to life's problems. How do we face the issues of life, whatever that may be, whether they are uh, problems related to uh, personal challenges in terms of problems we face in terms of our own our own emotions, our own lives, our own circumstances, whether they involve other people, whether they are problems related to working with people uh, in our a place of employment or working with people in our home, dealing with uh, spouses, dealing with children, dealing with uh, elderly parents, uh, whether they're problems related to finances or problems related to health. Uh, whatever the problems are, what this Bible teaches is that Jesus Christ is the answer. Sometimes we don't know how to ask the question right so that we understand how Jesus is the answer. I remember many, many, many years ago when I was in high school, uh, I was in a car with my uh, with a friend, my cousin, and we saw a bumper sticker, and the bumper sticker said, Jesus is the answer, and he looked at it and he said, what's the question? And I thought that that was very perceptive. It's very bright, but that's the issue: is what is the question, and how do you frame the question? And the way most people frame the question often ends up leading them in a wrong direction, because at at some level we think that that Christ is good enough, and He answers the problems maybe of where our eternal destiny is, or He answers the question of how to deal with certain spiritual issues that we may face. But when it comes to problems of balancing the the budget, balancing our checkbook, comes to problems that we deal with in terms of personal conflicts with other people, 
somehow we wonder, is that really the solution? And that's because our culture, just like the culture around the Colossi, had come up with alternate explanations and alternate solutions, and somehow they seemed to be more attractive. They seemed to be easier to grab hold of because they had redefined the problem so that they no longer were grounded in ultimately a spiritual uh, definition. In the ancient world, you had a mix. Uh, A more technical term is the word syncretism. It's what happens when you take uh, fruit and protein powder and orange juice or whatever and put it in the blender and turn it on. That's a syncretism. And that is exactly what we have in terms of uh, the way most people think about life. It's just a blend of this from that view and that from another view and a little bit of uh, Buddhism and a little bit of Gnosticism and a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Judaism, and we put it in the um, uh, religious philosophical blender, mix it all up, and somehow we think that because life seems to work on the basis of what we just did, uh, it, it, it must be true. It must be okay. And yet that's not what the Scripture says because, as I pointed out last week, using an illustration of a bread recipe, that even if the elements that go into the blender are good, healthy elements, if they don't have the right uh, proportion, if they don't come in the right makeup, then the whole blend is bad. The whole mix is bad. Uh, You can make, uh, if you switch your uh, components of uh, (coughs) salt and flour in making bread, it may come out looking something like bread, but it certainly doesn't taste any good. You have all the right elements there, but the proportional blend is not bread. And that's what happens in a lot of forms of so-called Christianity, which is why I often try to emphasize biblical Christianity as opposed to various uh, forms that are of ecumenical Christianity that are popular today. And that's not to mention external uh, religions. And in the ancient world, you had your blend of uh, different groups, uh, Greek philosophy, certain kinds of asceticism and mysticism from possibly Qumran in, in terms of a sort of a fringe uh, group of Jews. Uh, you also had blends from Eastern mystical uh, religions coming out of, of uh, Persia and other areas. And so that was part of this, what's referred to as the Colossian heresy. And so they have these various views of certain if you follow the right kind of diet, if you observe the right days, the right feast days, if you have a certain humility, and this is a pseudo-humility, if you uh, have that, if you uh, imitate the worship of angels, uh, emphasize they also emphasize visions. They believe that, that God or, or the angels were communicating directly uh, to them so that they could access truth apart from going to a specific objective revelation from God. And they were also arrogant. We see all of these things uh, mentioned in <clears throat> from verses uh, uh, 16 down through 23 as the Apostle Paul uh, interacts with the, the views that were uh, popular and becoming popular in, in Colossae. I also 
contrasted that to what we have today. We have a lot of the same ideas, for as Solomon pointed out at the end of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, there's really nothing new under the sun. We just repackage it. We give it a new name. We uh, make it look uh, a little more attractive. And so these things are modified from century to century, generation to generation, but it's still the same old lie that somehow man... A human being can find happiness and meaning and purpose in life without being dependent 100% upon God. And that takes us to the issues of the, the broad scope of Colossians, which is the sufficiency of Christ, which is always related to the authority of God. That because God is true and God is the sovereign God and creator of the universe, he has made us the way we are. He's revealed himself to us. He's defined problems in terms of his creation, and he's provided the solution so that when we reject Christ as being completely sufficient, we're also rejecting the authority of God. When we reject the authority of God, we're also going to reject the sufficiency of his word, sufficiency of grace, sufficiency of Christ, and we're going to look elsewhere. It's going to be a Bible plus something else. It's going to be a Christ plus something else. It's going to be a cross plus something else in order to find real meaning, happiness, definition. In the world today, we have a number of other assaults that have developed uh, over the last uh, couple of centuries that still are very much with us. They had these same issues in the ancient world. They just looked a little bit different, and, and some of the details were a little different. But starting with the Enlightenment, we had an emphasis on human intellectual autonomy. In other words, man doesn't need any input from God in order to be able to understand and define reality. Oh, really? How do you know that? Because all of our knowledge is limited. So to even make a knowledge claim that we can come to know things as they are implies that we must have access to complete knowledge in order to be able to say that. I mean, that's just an arrogant claim in and of itself. And, oh, yeah, what was the last characteristic of the ancient Colossian heresy? It was arrogance. So we are just as arrogant today. We think that we can come to absolute truth apart from any revelation from God. Uh, I've frequently pointed out that reason is helpful and good. There are many things we learn through reason, empiricism, science. There are many things that Adam learned in the garden through direct observation, uh, which is akin to the use of rationalism and empiricism today. But there was one thing he could never know on the basis of uh, either his own reason, his own frame of reference, or his own experience, and that is that there was one tree in the garden that if he ate from it, it would reverberate through all reality and cut him off from God in what uh, we refer to as spiritual death. For God said that in the day that you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. As a result of this shift to human intellectual autonomy, it impacted the sciences in a great way. You have the rise of, of Darwinism, the idea that the, rather than the earth being relatively young, the earth is billions of years old because you're prejudging your empirical observation on the basis of your own finite reason, and that man evolved and all life forms evolved from uh, inorganic matter to organic matter, and how that leap 
is made from inorganic to organic has never been uh, explained or defined. It's just glossed over. You have the rise also of psychotherapy. You're redefining man's problems in terms of his soul. Uh, the Bible talks about soul and that man is comprised of soul and spirit as well as body. So there's a physical and as well as an immaterial dimension to man's makeup. And, um, and you have a soul, but the Bible also talks that there's some other immaterial element that enables the soul to properly orient to God, to have a relationship with God. And that is what dies or is cut off from God in spiritual death so that man cannot have that relationship with God uh, if he is spiritually if he is spiritually dead a manifestation uh, there are several manifestations of problems from psychotherapy but one of them that you hear today is that the bible addresses the spirit but psychotherapy addresses the problems of the soul they emphasize that because the word psychology comes from sukos the greek word for soul and they make this pseudo are false uh, bifurcation between spirit and soul uh, that's not based on the, on the scripture. I've heard many, uh, some theologians and many believers, especially those in the counseling, social work, psychotherapy industry, try to make that that argument. But it's it's just based on uh, it, it, it's based on a lexical leisure domain. In other words, they're just playing games with words. Uh, drugs and happiness are another influence. Uh, in the ancient world, they often used drugs in, to induce a, some sort of hallucination, uh, some sort of uh, experience, mystical experience, uh, so that the gods could speak to the individual. Today we use, we can use emotion, many other tools to do the same thing. Uh, sociology. We study empirically how people relate to each other, starting with sinful people relating in already corrupt ways, that becomes our norm. And basically what soci- there's a lot of good things from sociology in certain areas. You can learn and observe many different things. For example, in politics, you can observe through various polls, human behavior patterns, things like that. But when it leaks over into c- coming to s- some sort of absolutes affecting the uh, patterns of the church or solving the problems of life, then all of a sudden what you use as your norm are, are fallen human beings. That's not the norm that Scripture presents. I'm often reminded when I mention something like that of a, of a well-known um, uh, instrument, that's what the professionals refer to, various uh, personality tests, that was used back in the 70s and 80s called an MMPI, and it was the Minnesota something or other uh, proficiency um, instrument or something of that nature. And this at one time became a standard test that, uh, after I was at Dallas Seminary that became required of any student who was applying to Dallas Seminary. But uh, the reality is is that the norm uh, norm that was used to establish the, 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 the norm line in the MMPI were a bunch of convicts in the penal system up in Minnesota. So that becomes your norm, then you know everybody can end up being rather rather cr- screwed up. Uh, you have the introduction of socialism, Marxism, and statism, which violates always violates the basic establishment laws that God uh, put into effect into the social structure, government structure of creation. 
and then we have uh, government coming along on top of that to redefine other elements within society, such as responsibility, individual responsibility in the way they handle uh, uh, criminal codes and penal systems to uh, redefining marriage, redefining family, redefining uh, the relationship between government and individual. All of this are deemed to be the solution to problems. And the reason is, is because when you redefine the problem away from how Scripture defines it, then you can easily redefine a solution that looks viable. But the Scripture says that all, every problem that we face in life ultimately is traced back to that nasty little thing that we all have, that, that aspect of our makeup that Scripture refers to as the body of sin or the we call, also call the sin nature and that as long as we are basically corrupted and perverted by the fact of sin, then we are going to do uh, bad things, and we're going to experience bad things in life. There are many good things that we experience in life as well, but unless we can understand problems in terms of that that reality of the fallenness, what the Bible refers to as the fallenness of, of the world and the world system, then we're never quite on the right page, and so whatever solutions we have may work in some sense, but they do not provide uh, real solutions. The Bible does. Biblical Christianity teaches salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone, and that that relates to every phase of salvation, phase one, phase two, phase three. Everything is predicated upon Jesus Christ and what he did upon the cross, not on on human works and human efforts gaining approbation with God. The problem in the ancient world was at Colossae was that there was this blend of uh, uh, Judaistic mysticism that emphasized obedience to certain moral precepts as the way to happiness and meaning. This is blended with the mystery cults that you had in the Greek culture, Elysian mysteries, Dionysian mysteries, and this emphasized salvation through some sort of esoteric not merely soteric. Notice the difference in those. One little E makes a lot of difference. Esoteric knowledge, uh, not merely soteric knowledge, involved uh, angel worship uh, as well as seeing visions and other things of that nature. And then you also have a Greek philosophy, which also included aspects of angel worship within Gnosticism, uh, various emphases on asceticism which is giving, thinking that if I give up certain things, God will then grow close to me, and libertinism, which is it really doesn't matter, I can do whatever I want to do, and God's going to do whatever he wants to do. It's related to uh, a fatalism. And the Colossian heresy just sort of blended all of this up and involved a basic rejection of the sufficiency of Christ. Now, in this previous section, what we read is Paul coming to sort of one conclusion from his explanation of what Christ did on the cross where everything is provided for for the believer because uh, in verse 13, we're forgiven of all trespasses. Verse 14, uh, they were wiped out uh, at the cross and they were taken out of the way when they were nailed to the cross. And this also disarmed principalities and powers. I mean, the spiritual elements in the ancient world, there was also this fear of the negative spiritual elements, the spirits, or demons, and that they, these were often associated with the basic elements of, of the world, basic elements being fire, air, uh, earth, and water. 
Those were the basic basic components, and often they were deified uh, or associated with, with evil spirits. And so having established the objective realities of what Christ did on the cross, Paul then goes on to say, because of that, don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone evaluate you or criticize you in terms of how you eat, food or drink, or what you observe in terms of special days, feast days, etc. And some of that, of course, would have come out of a Jewish calendar, especially the idea of a sh- the uh, Shabbat resting on the seventh day. And he points out then in verse 17 that these things are a shadow of things to come. That is, there wasn't a reality in and of those feast days and the Shabbat itself, but in all all of the aspects of the Mosaic Law, everything related to to the feasts and the the weekly patterns in in the worship and ritual of Israel uh, somehow foreshadowed something in relation to the work, the person, or the work of the Messiah. Second command was let no one cheat you that if we get distracted from a total dependence upon God, that somehow we will be defrauded. We're going to lose something significant and tangible because we've wasted time and we've tried to do things on our own. Uh, So Paul warns in a second uh, uh, negative uh, warning, let no one cheat you of your reward. Uh, by taking delight in false humility, worship of angels, and intruding into those things which he has not seen. That's where the idea of the, fa- the visions comes from, trying to gain an insight, a vision into things that were not uh, revealed. And then verse 19, I pointed out, the problem was that they didn't hold fast to the head. Now, if you take a body, take a human body, and what happens if you don't hold fast to your head? You're decapitated. Your head is a source of guidance. Your head is a source of nourishment. Cut off the head, and you can't take in nourishment. Uh, Often uh, my stomach thinks that my throat's been cut, but uh, you cut the throat, you can't eat. You can't take in nourishment, and you're going to grow hungry, and you're going to uh, dry up, and your body will, will disappear. So we are to hold fast to the head. And Paul says, when we hold fast to the head, it is from him, that is from Christ, who is the head of the church, that the body is nourished and the bones, the sinews, the, are all knit together. Growth takes place, health takes place, because we take in our nourishment via Jesus Christ as the head of the church. And that produces growth. So when we are cut off, from Christ as the sufficient head, and we're looking for nourishment elsewhere, that's even worse than eating eating fast food 24-7. It's not good. It's, it's like eating poison because it is just, uh, just self, uh, self-destructive. So when we don't hold fast to the head, uh, it, look, it means that we're looking for guidance, and direction and sustenance or nourishment from somewhere other than Christ. So we may we may camouflage it in Christian terms, but ultimately what happens is we're looking elsewhere other than Christ. And and the conclusion is is that uh, we can only grow on the basis of God. He's the one who provides growth, and He's speaking both. In both in terms of individual spiritual growth and in terms of 
the growth or expansion, physical growth of, of, of the church. This is seen in passages such as 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7, where Paul uses an agricultural analogy, talking about the fact that it didn't matter whether it was him or Apollos or some other teacher of the word. Remember, it's always God's word that has the power for growth. It's not who the teacher is. It's not who the pastor is. Who the pastor is is ultimately irrelevant. It is who it is the word, the content that is taught. So Paul says, Who then is Paul, who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believe, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered. See, each one has a different role. One is not more important than the other. I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the increase? God gave the increase. God is the one who supplies the real growth, and real growth is only that which comes from God. So Paul concludes in verse 7, So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gave the who gives the increase. Now the problem that they're facing here in Corinth is that they're seeking help for life's problems apart from God. And this results in a spiritual decapitation. It cuts us off from the only source, not one source, not the best source, but the only source of guidance and nourishment. We're cut off from the authority of Christ. We're cut off from any nourishment that comes from Christ, that is specifically from his word. For as Paul will say uh, later on in Colossians 3.15, we're to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. It is his word that is that source of nourishment. And that, and that alone produces spiritual growth it provides us with spiritual strength. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it cuts us off from future rewards, privileges, and position in the future kingdom. It may not seem like it impacts you much today, but it will have a drastic impact, positively or negatively. It will be extreme one way or the other. Uh, in the future millennial kingdom. That's the problem that they're facing. They're looking for solutions either in Christ plus something else or just ignoring Christ, giving him up as the head and looking somewhere else. So the solution, as he expresses it, is that we have to understand our position in Christ. That's it. Look back in chapter 2, verse uh, 9 and 10, rather uh, 10, rather, 10 and 11. Verse 10, it says, you're complete in him. What do you mean I'm complete in him? Just that is that we've already potentially been given everything in Christ. We just have to learn how to use what we've been given, not look for something else. It's not like you're missing out. That was one of the errors in what was no, what is known theologically as the Holiness Pentecostal movement. And that came along in the mid-19th century, initially as the holiness movement, then later uh, as it uh, sort of uh, morphed and changed into the Pentecostal movement. The idea was you didn't get it all at the cross. You had to have a second step of grace. There's a first step when you trust in Christ for salvation, but there's a second step when you have to have an additional step of faith for sanctification. You don't get it all at the cross. Believing in Christ isn't sufficient for everything. It's just sufficient to get you uh, into heaven. 
See, that is a non-biblical, uh, non-biblical position. Uh, we're told in verse 10, we're complete in him from the moment we trust in Christ as Savior because he is the head of all principality and power. He is the authority over the universe, and we are in him. And then verse 11 says, in him you were also circumcised. And we study verses 11 and 12 pointing to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is where this is first uh, introduced. We'll come back to that in just a minute. So we have to understand our position in Christ, and the way that we get there is through uh, this thing that the Bible calls the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. We need to then learn to live in light of its reality. It's not positive thinking. See, there, there, there's a counterfeit to this out there in the world that usually flies under the flag of, of, of um, some kind of motivational teaching. And you will just, just believe certain things to be true, and you can change your reality if you just believe certain things are true. It doesn't matter whether they're true or not. If you just believe it's true, then it'll be true. It's just another manifestation of the emperor's new clothes. But see, in, in, when we look at this in Scripture, what Paul is saying, it isn't believe something to be true as if it's true, but we're to believe it's true because this is a true reality. It's not just some sort of uh, smoke and mirrors. It's not just some sort of psychological a trick, some sort of, of self-hypnosis. It is a changed reality that occurs once you trust in Christ as Savior. We have to learn to live in light of that reality. And we need to develop a mindset that is based on that reality. When we get down into the third chapter, he states, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Now, that doesn't mean you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. That's how some people look at something like that. It means that you are thinking in terms of God's mindset and not on a finite, earthly human mindset that is false. You're, ba you're basing your thinking on God's Word. He will go on to say that this involves putting to death the de deeds of the flesh or the sin in our life. What does that mean to be actively putting to death sin in our life? That sounds a lot like legalism. That's only if you've redefined legalism and you don't have a biblical definition of legalism because Paul clearly says we're to put to death the sin in our life and we're to put off these sins. Well, that sounds legalistic. Paul isn't legalistic. He's the apostle of grace. So that has to mean something else. No, it doesn't. It means our volition is engaged in the process of applying Scripture. But you have to understand this within a context of grace. I, I thought I had an, one more point there. I guess I didn't actually put that then. We have to deal with certain misconceptions and distortions. One misconception is that's popular today is that spiritual growth is inevitable to the one who is truly saved. If you're elect, you'll grow. If you're not elect, you won't grow, and sin in your life, especially certain overt sins, if they're manifest, that means you weren't really saved. And so the only way to know you're saved is to make sure you don't commit certain sins. This is the lordship position or the theology of uh, re the Reformed churches, Presbyterian, Calvinism, that, uh, that school of thought. 
Then there's a second distortion, which is the idea that you just have to reach sort of a certain spiritual point, a crisis point, a point of decision, and you make a, you commit your life at a point in time to Christ, and at that point of commitment, uh, dedication, or whatever, then you get elevated into a upper level of spirituality, and it is in that second work of grace that that you can experience real victory over sin in your life. It won't be the struggle that it's been before. This is the viewpoint of the Higher Life School that came out of the uh, uh, 19th century, also known as Keswick Theology and part of the Holiness and Pentecostal option. In the Pentecostal option, it is the way you know you reach that point is because then you speak in tongues, which is a sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then you're just not going to sin like you did before. A uh, third misconception or distortion is the idea that if I just do what the Bible says to do, if I just a pure act of my will to go and do what the Bible says to do, then uh, and without any reference to the Holy Spirit, then I'm living the Christian life. And that's also prevalent in a lot of Reformed Calvinistic schools because there's basically, they, in their the, theology or doctrine, they ignore the role of the Holy Spirit. Maybe not so much since the 20th century, but historically that was not part of Calvinism. You just go do what the Bible says to do. Another misconception distortion is the idea that the Holy Spirit communicates directly to me. Uh, and through me as to what I should do. This is the mysticism or asceticism option. Another option or misconception that you have is that, that's also prevalent in, in a number of different uh, schools of theology or doctrine, Keswick, Holiness, Pentecostal, uh, some Reformed, you have to crucify yourself. What does that mean to crucify yourself? Jesus said that. He said, if, those, if you want to follow me, then you have to crucify yourself daily. Well, what in the world does that mean? We have to tie this together because there's crucify yourself synonyms throughout all of these passages. In this passage, we see that when you get down into uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 5, Paul says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. When you're crucified, you put, when something is crucified, it's put to death. See, there's a connection there. We've got to uh, uh, unpack that because there's a lot of misunderstanding. Now, I just want us to look at this in an, in an overview because it's important to get the, that, that flyover view of what Paul is saying here so we don't get too lost in the weeds. We can understand that he really is developing this in, an, in a rigidly logical manner. That's how Paul thought, and everything connects together. He begins this section in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, by talking about what we have in him. In him you were circumcised. Why is he emphasizing circumcision? As I pointed out when we went through that, because of this uh, Judaistic element that was present uh, in Colossae that brought in this Judaistic asceticism, probably Merkabah mysticism, which I mentioned last time, which was just a, uh, a kind of a fringe view of uh, the, uh, spirituality within Judaism. And they also emphasize circumcision. But Paul says that the physical circumcision wasn't the reality of spiritual circumcision. What he points out in verses 11 and 12 is that this happens when we're, the first phrase of 2.12, when we're buried with him in baptism. 
were buried with him in baptism. So what verses 11 and 12 are talking about is this, this spiritual baptism that occurs for every Christian. So 2, 11, and 12 starts this section off by laying the groundwork and talking about the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Then, after explaining a few things about the cross and the problems in, in uh, Colossae in verse 20, he says, therefore, if you died with Christ, that is spiritual baptism terminology, which we'll see coming right out of Romans 6, 3. When we, we died with Christ, when we trusted in him and were identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then he says in 3.1, if then you were raised with Christ, that's also part of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Both of these are expressed in Greek by this word in English, it's if, which can mean any uh, across a whole spectrum of, of hypotheticals uh, or conditions. But in Greek, it's expressed as a what's called a first-class condition in Greek, for they had uh, at least four different ways of expressing a condition. And in this way, it's an, an expression of a condition with the assumption that it's true, that if you died with Christ and you did. Or we could even say at this point, because he's talking to them as, as believers, as Christians, he says, since you died with Christ, certain things are going to be true. Uh, and since you were raised with Christ, certain things were true. And, and dying with Christ, being raised with Christ, is part of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 5 of chapter 3, Paul comes back to say, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, uh, but now you're, you yourselves are to put off all these things. So that terminology is also directly related to the terminology Paul uses in Romans chapter 6 in explaining baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then in 3.10 through 11, he concludes this whole section by saying, because you have put on the new man, putting on and putting off the new man is baptism of the Holy Spirit terminology, as we'll see, where there is neither... um, where, where they're uh, actually 3, 8, and 10 to 11 go, uh, tied together. I just left off a lot of what was in between. Uh, because you have put on the new man where there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. Now that language is the language of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. In, Col- in, in, excuse me, in Galatians 3, 27 and 28, Paul touches on the baptism by the Holy Spirit. There he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. See, he connects this phrase to put on Christ with what happens when we're baptized by the Holy Spirit. It happened at one instant in time. Now let me go back to those Colossian passages there at the end where he says, Because you have put on the new man, notice the similarity, You put on the new man. When did you put on the new man? You put on the new man when you were baptized into Christ. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3.27. For as many of you are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now, the result of that in Colossians 3.10-11 is by putting on the new man. uh, In this new environment, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. Now, now what does that mean, that, that there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised? Paul was a Jew 
before he trusted Christ as Savior, right? And he is, as we believe, the distinct apostle to the church and the one through whom God gave most of the revelation related to this new entity called the church and the church age. Is Paul still a Jew? Sure he is. See, there's a, there, there's a truth in that Christ is the end of the law and that, that being a Jew is no longer spiritually or soteriologically, that means in terms of your spiritual life or being saved, as significant as it was under the Mosaic law. However, the Abrahamic covenant preceded the Mosaic law the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant that had circumcision as a sign for it, and the Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. We still believe that if we bless the descendants of Abraham, we'll be blessed, and if we curse them, we'll be cursed, right? If that's still in effect, then the Abrahamic covenant is still in effect, and circumcision for the Jew is still in effect as an ethnic Abrahamic covenant-related option, not soteriological or spiritual. It's not related to that. It's related to the Abrahamic promise of God calling out a distinct people uh, for himself. After the Savior is still Jewish, still they're a member of the church. The Jewishness is no longer, by being a member of the church in the church age, Jewishness is no longer significant spiritually like it was under the Mosaic law. Mosaic law, if you weren't Jewish, you couldn't go in the temple. If you weren't a free Jewish male, you couldn't go worship in the inner part of the temple. If you were a, a, a Gentile or if you were a Jewish female, you didn't have the same access to God that you had that, that a free Jewish male had. There were spiritual distinctives under the Mosaic law. But Christ, Romans 10.4 says, is the end of the law. And so those distinctives related to access to God are no longer in effect. But that doesn't mean that a person who was a slave, the instant they trusted Christ, ended up not being a slave, or that a female quit being a female, or a male quit being a a male. Uh, In Galatians 3.27 and 28, Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, that's the idea of like clothes, you put on Christ, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I would suggest that most everybody here is probably a Christian, and if I asked all the women to raise their hand, I would think that most of the women here would raise their hand because they know they're women. Just because they got saved doesn't mean they quit being women. It just meant that being a woman in the church age is no longer... uh, a, a, a negative as it was under the under the Mosaic law. Same thing with slaves. Onesimus, there's a tiny book in the New Testament, Philemon, and Philemon owned a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus escaped. Later he ran into the Apostle Paul in Rome where he heard the gospel and responded and trusted in Jesus as his Savior. And Paul said, because you're a slave, you've got to go back, back to Philemon. You've got to go back to your owner. So being saved didn't negate his status as being a slave. He was still a slave. But spiritually, it didn't affect his relationship to God as it would have under the Mosaic law. Now, the key word that I'm honing in on here is this word put on, because this is a word that is uh, found towards the conclusion of our section when we look at... uh, 
Colossians uh, chapter 3, verses, verses 8 and 9. Now, I'm not skipping over and forgetting the intervening verses. We'll get back to those. But, but when, I think it's helpful for us to know where Paul's going with this line of argument so that we can understand why he's saying what he's saying at the end of chapter 2 and beginning of 3. If Once we know where he's headed, what his conclusion is going to be, then we can have a better understanding of why he says what he says in the intervening verses. And he uses this terminology uh, of the dressing room to put off certain things or to remove certain kinds of clothing and to put on certain kinds of clothing. It's important to understand those, those metaphors uh, as we uh, understand this passage. So Paul says this same type of terminology in uh, Galatians 3, 27, 28, using the Greek verb in duo. Now, he uses different forms of that by adding different prefixes to it, but it's still the same basic idea of either disrobing or, or, or uh, putting clothes on. It says, if, you were, if we're baptized into Christ, we have put on Christ. This is an aorist indicative indicating it's a past action. And he's just simply referring to it as something that happened in the past at the same time that we were baptized into Christ. Now, that's important to understand that because this is an identity change. You didn't put on the emperor's new clothes. It's not just some, some uh, theological fiction that now there's something new on. It is a reality that we put on a new uniform, which is a uniform of Christ's righteousness, that imputation of Christ's righteousness. And that is put what we put on at the instant of salvation. That's what changes our identity. That's who we are. Does that mean we still sin? Sure. If, if we didn't, couldn't still sin as Christians and sin as egregiously as we did before we were saved, then, then why is Paul saying all of these things about putting off sin and putting on the, the um, uh, character of Christ? So he says at, at, in terms of salvation, we, at that instant, in, in relation to baptism of the Holy Spirit, we put on Christ. And see, in Colossians 3, 8, 9, as he brings us to this conclusion, he says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these things. See, there's a difference between what happens positionally in Christ, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and our experiential reality. We put on Christ in terms of our position, but now, after salvation, we have to learn how to live in light of the fact that we're wearing a new suit of clothes. And it's sort of like you might think of uh, seeing, I'm going to date myself here, seeing something in one of the Our Gang comedies where you take one of the little street urchins and you dress him up in a suit and he runs out and he plays in the mud and in the, in the dirt in the street. That's how a lot of Christians are. Uh, the, the suit represents his new position, a new status, but he hasn't learned enough to recognize that he can't act like he did uh, prior to that. So we have this command, verse 8, now you yourselves are to put off all these things. That's a lifetime process. We're to put off uh, all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, and do not lie to one another since you have what? Put off the old man with his deeds. Wait a minute. On one case, we've already put something off. In the second verse, we've already put off the old man. But at the same time, we're commanded to put these 
these characteristics off. That's the difference between our position in Christ and the experience. In verse 8, we have the Greek word apotithemi, which means to put off or put something away. It's interesting, this word is also used in a number of passages that relate to, to, to confession of sin and cleansing. For example, in First uh, Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 1, that therefore put off these things, and there's a list of sins. And then in the next verse it says, and, and desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. There is a precondition to taking in the word of God, and that is the removal of, of sin. It's confession, confession of sin. So putting off all these things isn't simply confession of sin, but that's certainly the starting point. But it is also learning to live in fellowship, abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit in obedience to Him, uh, which is why Paul follows us up with don't lie to one another. Why? How? Why are we to do all this? Because we've already put off the old man, that is everything we were before we were saved, with its deeds. That's the reality. Now the reality has to match our experience, rather, has to match the reality. This is why Paul says in Colossians 2.20, Therefore, if you died with Christ, that's our position. Yes, you did. From the basic principles of the world, that's the stoicheia word again, which refers to not only the core basic elements of, that Greek philosophy saw that underlay or underlied, underlay everything in the in, in reality, but also was connected to a spiritual domain of the demons. So he says, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, in other words, there's a decisive break that occurred in terms of our identity at the instant of salvation. And then Paul says, why are you still living like you, that way? In other, this would be like somebody from the old Soviet Union uh, defecting, coming to the United States and continuing to live as if they were... Uh, under the tyranny of of, uh, of the Communist Party in Moscow. See, there's been a, a, a radical shift. You don't live like you used to live. There's supposed to be a change. And that's what in 221 and uh, 22, he, he refers to those things that were taught in the false system. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish. This is finite and limited. That has nothing to do with your eternal reality and relationship with God. And then he concludes this by saying that these things indeed have an appearance. See, they only have this superficial appearance of spiritual viability. They have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body, but they're of no value against what? The indulgence of the flesh. It really doesn't impact being able to deal with your own sin nature. Only learning to live in light of what Christ did for you at the cross and what happened in the baptism of the Holy Spirit gives you any basis for dealing with uh, your your own uh, sin nature. And this takes us over to the concept that Paul is going to express in Romans 6, 3 through 4, in terms of our identification with Christ in his death. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? See, that terminology is related to what we see in Colossians 2.20. Therefore, if we died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world, or still, you might add, still living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? So next time we'll come back 
And we'll begin to look at how this baptism of the Spirit, as outlined in Romans 6, is integral to understanding this identity change that occurs at the, at, at the instant of salvation and the fact that we put on a new identity, we put on new clothing, as it were, and this means that it should impact our experience in a specific way. So we'll come back and focus on that next time. Father, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to focus on your word, to be uh, come face-to-face with the new reality that we have in Christ. Because it is in Christ that we have been blessed with every blessing in the heavenlies, that it is in Christ that we have riches. It is in Christ that we have the ability to deal with the sin in our own life, to deal with our sin nature, and to... Uh, walk with you, and it is only by your power as we walk by means of the Holy Spirit in the light of your word that we are then able to uh, realize the real joy and the real quality of life that we have been promised in Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty in full. There's nothing you or I can do to add to that. We simply accept it as a free gift. And the instant we accept that as a free gift, we are identified with Christ in a spiritual transaction called the uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we're given a new identity. All that was before is, is ended, and we've got a new identity and a new capacity and a new capability. But from that point on, it's important and dependent upon our study of your word, our walking by the Spirit. But that gift is yours simply by trusting in Christ. No conditions, no strings attached. If you've never trusted in Christ, this is your opportunity to do so. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied today and that uh, God the Holy Spirit would help us to understand it and help us to understand the, the tremendous tremendous provision that you've given us that we might experience real life and real happiness, but it's only on your terms, not our terms. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.